Ahoy authors! You're listening to The Writership Podcast, a show focused on helping indie authors master self-editing skills. So come aboard and get ready to find the treasure in your manuscript with hosts Leslie Watts and Clark Chamberlain. Welcome to episode 126 of The Writership Podcast. Today, we're talking about second-person point of view. I'm Leslie Watts, here with novelist and fellow certified StoryGrid editor, Anne Holly. To learn more about the podcast, visit writership.com slash podcast. Jim Kukrell of the Author Marketing Club and the Sell More Book Show is doing another big conference, this time in Chicago in May. It's called the Sell More Book Show Summit, and you can learn more about it and get a ticket at sellmorebookshow.com slash summit. Join 175 other writers and publishing friends for this interactive two-day conference and networking event in Chicago. Eat, drink, and learn together and be on your way to building a stronger and more profitable career as an author. Only 175 seats are available. So visit sellmorebookshow.com slash summit to grab your ticket. You've probably noticed that it's been a while since I put up a new episode. And well, let's just say I encountered some progressive complications in the last few months. But the good news is I have overcome them and I am excited to bring you new episodes. I have a bunch of scenes queued up to bring to you and lots of really great insights that I've had over the last several months. So I'll have lots of new things to share with you and I've got some ideas and questions to ask you, but I'll save those for another day. For now, let's dive into this episode. Today, I'm joined by my good friend, Anne Holly, who is also a certified StoryGrid editor and the author of the recently published novel, Restraint, which you may remember from when Anne was on last time. She describes it as Pride and Prejudice meets Brokeback Mountain. If you're interested in finding out more about Anne, you can reach her at anneholly.net, and we'll have that address in the show notes as well. So welcome, Anne. I'm so glad to have you back. Hey, thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and I'm excited to dive in today. Have you brought a quote for us? I do. I went looking for something and I found something that wasn't terribly succinctly quotable. So I took some liberties in editing out some of the words. But this is from TV Tropes, which is a wonderful site for writers. Um, I recommend that people go explore around. It's uh, it's a wonderful look at how, how stories are used and replicated and pieces of stories are found all, in all these different forms of writing and movies and TV. So here's the quote, second person narration is rare. On one hand, like first person narration, it has an intimate feeling. 
On the other hand, while the intimacy of first-person narration is that of storytelling, the intimacy of second-person narration is that of telepathy. The book is directly telling you what to think or feel. You'll usually find second-person narrative keeping close company with present-tense narrative to reinforce the impression that this isn't just happening to you, but it's happening to you right now. If you look hard enough, you will discover indications that the second-person narrator is not supposed to be you, the reader, and this causes you, the reader, to wonder why the author would dare to try to make you identify that intimately with a second-person narrator who is um, not you. And those are good questions to be asking as we go through today's wonderful submission. Yes, and I think, well, you pointed this out earlier that the author of this quote used the second person point of view in mm-hmm. in delivering you, that. If you look hard enough, you will discover. And that is often the way instructional information is written. Right. And that's one of the things that can be tricky if you're doing this in fiction. Right. You will tend to sound like a teacher up in front of the class and you do this and you do that and Oh, we don't want that? <laughs> well, we, we may not want that. I don't think, unless you're writing a how-to, you may, you may not want that. Let's turn to today's submission. We have a short story called All-American by David Austin. He identifies the genre as American lit. The word count is about 3,600 words, and this comes from the beginning of the story. So thank you, David. And today, Anne is going to narrate the story for us. All American by David Austin. Start with the old yellowing photograph, a small blonde boy in worn out clothes, his jeans a patchwork at the knees. His smile missing the front teeth is tentative, a little nervous, but hopeful, friendly, above all friendly. Like he thinks that if he smiles, you won't hurt him. Just looking at this kid, you can tell that he's a dreamer. He's standing in a field. The green of the grass has faded out of the picture, but you know that it's spring. Holding out a small bundle of wildflowers, presenting them to the photographer. You keep the picture wedged near the speedometer as a reminder. From this old photo, go to the open high plains of central Montana the long two-lane blacktop stretching to the horizons. Fence posts flicker by at 65 miles per hour, now and then a stretch of them topped with worn-out boots. Heading up one hill, slow down to read an incomplete set of Burma shave signs. If at first, you don't. Succeed. Burma shave is what? Any direction, you have the endless roll of hill and prairie, and in the grass and sage, small herds of cattle. Sometimes startled antelope run past the bored cows, going nowhere almost as fast as you. Heading west, you can see the mountains, first the peaks rising above the circle of the world, and then, hours later, the massive base, the perspective making you feel small but strong. Driving east, the long, lonely drive into nothing makes you feel insignificant. Now and again, a pickup passes in the other direction. You raise your hand and your chin simultaneously, giving the laconic plains salute, gestures that connect you like ranch land gang sign. 
Less often, a sedan passes, going too fast, a flustered man looking lost, kids watching phone screens, a woman looking pinch-faced and angry. They don't wave. You always do, out of habit. Tourists, or maybe newly transplanted Californians. You think about them. They don't know where they are, and when they do find themselves, they won't stay. The sky and the landscape here are too empty. Nature is too close. Just look in the rearview mirror until the car vanishes into the distance. You aren't staying either. You can't be here anymore. Every sagebrush, each stand of aspens, the canyons and rivers, the crisp smell of early winter carried on the winds from the mountains. Every atom of this place is a home you can't go back to. 30 years. That's long enough to stand on the prairies and climb the mountains of Montana and Wyoming. And three years thinking about what could have been a life is more than a lifetime. You worry about how it feels like being torn from a womb, like dying. And from this highway across the plains, with its emptiness that fills you through the eyes, go back to the picture. What else hides in this serious boy's smile, his still hopeful gaze? Dreams? Fear, of course, but look deeper. See, there you are, you. All of the things that you are, and especially the things that you are not, are right there in that picture, carried to term in this hopeful young boy. Still hopeful, still tentatively smiling, holding out flowers to an unseen observer, a plea in your eyes. Don't hurt me, I'm very friendly. A dog showing its belly. No matter how you hide him, that little boy is in you still. It was a phone call from the distant past that broke into you and breached your carefully constructed fortress of solitude. Her voice sounds like the boy in the picture looks, timidly hopeful, tail low but still wagging. She wonders how you are, had just been thinking of you for no reason, has a few minutes of small talk and the two of you laugh, forced at first but quickly falling into the pattern of old friends. Under the skin of it, the conversation says that she's alone again, and as always, you are who she turns to. And why not, you think, as you hang up the phone? Why not do this thing one more time, see what happens? If staying here, scarred, haunted, and running out of reasons to wake up, is plan A, heading to her bed in Boston is a decent plan B. Montana passes, melds imperceptibly into North Dakota before you turn south and wander down through the long valley of the Missouri River and fall into South Dakota, passing tiny towns and big farms, radio stations that play George Jones and then the Ag Report, until you come to Chamberlain on the steep banks of the river and you realize that you aren't going to head east to tumble into a once familiar bed and relationship. You'll have dinner here, sleep in a cheap, unambitious motel, and in the morning, you'll head west to what you've been dreaming of for most of your life. You'll change your mind often as you head back towards the mountains you just left. You will turn around twice, but the pull of the west is like the tide. Seattle is your eventual destination. Call it Plan C. Call it inevitable. Whatever you call it, it will be a long trip. You've never been comfortable on freeways, the oncoming traffic, constant headlights, unpredictable drivers. Even before the accident, you hesitated to use the interstate. After it, you would sweat and shake after a mile or two, even on the lightly traveled freeways of eastern Montana. Sometimes you would have to pull over, retch, and heave your breakfast on the shoulder of the road. Instead of the admittedly faster route of I-90, you prefer the narrow state highways, the county roads, the gravel lanes that crisscross the mountain states. 
The extra time that the back roads add on to a trip doesn't bother you. Freeways aren't built with scenery in mind, just speed and capacity. Not once on the interstate have you seen a moose being chased across a meadow by a Hindu photographer, or a bear in the borrow ditch with a bag of Cheetos and a fluorescent orange snout. These are the things you tell yourself as you drive old roads, your ancient international truck struggling up steep slopes, sighing with mechanical relief as you coast down the other side. When a few days into your trip, the truck dies on a clear, brisk morning, so far from anywhere that even a small town would seem exotic, you aren't surprised. You do swear and kick the tire, but you grab the picture and put on the big blue backpack that is your luggage. The truck will be towed, stripped, or stolen. You walk away. This dirt road, 70 miles northwest of Gillette, Wyoming, gets more traffic than some, ranch hands and the occasional deputy, and no local will pass you without stopping. It's the oil field workers you have to worry about, temporary transplants from all over the country with no understanding of the traditions of this area. They won't stop. They will wave if they see you, but those boys are usually too busy looking for a cell signal or the next well site. With any luck, you won't breathe too much of the red dust that's covering you as you walk. If things go your way, someone will come by before nightfall. Either way, standing won't get you closer to your destination. After a few miles, you just walk. By noon, you've walked the stiffness out of your boots, and the pain in your feet lets you finally forget all other pain. The blisters on your heels seem to have blisters of their own. You know that if you sit, you will keep sitting. You walk. No one has come by you in either direction. At least it's getting warmer. Early fall mornings feel like winter, but the afternoons are like high summer, with the temperature changing as much as 50 degrees from dawn to mid-afternoon. You take a drink from your water bottle, wipe your lips, and squint back the way you came. A cloud of dust is coming your way. Salvation? For form's sake, you stick out your thumb as the truck comes clattering up to you and stops. The driver points an ancient Polaroid camera at you, takes a picture, smiles, and drives away. He's towing your truck. Before this moment, you didn't know that anger had a taste, bitter and salty, not unlike the coppery taste of blood. You've known the tastes of other emotions, but anger is new. For several minutes, you stand there, still and silent, stunned by this sensation. The meadowlarks sing. A pheasant chuckles from somewhere in the field of tan stubble beside the road. In the middle distance, you can see a prairie dog standing guard. Ahead of you, the dust from the truck settles quickly. You walk on. He's headed somewhere. You'll get there eventually. After a couple of hours of heavy walking, the road dips into a tree-lined valley, cottonwood and Russian olive, willows and chokecherries, a bridge over a creek. You walk faster, and at the bottom of the valley, on a small turnout next to the creek, there's the man who passed you, sitting on the hood of his truck. You look at him for a long time, trying to decide how angry you are. Without turning to look at you, he holds out a beer. You aren't mad enough to ignore that, and you walk up past your truck, his truck, and take the cold can. Jesus Christ, you are the slowest goddamn wasitu i ever seen. I've been sitting here waiting for at least two beers, he says, not looking at you. He's the biggest Indian you've ever met. Man, this pack is heavy and my boots are new. Felt like I might die out here today, you say, between pulls on the ice-cold beer. You should have left the pack in your truck, little brother. Took me an hour to get that poor old thing into the dolly to tow it. Why'd you drive off? You shrug out of the pack and lean it against the tire. That's a good question, isn't it? See, I figure I got your truck, you might be mad. Maybe you got a pistol like this one I carry to kill snakes, and 
you see me with your truck and think I'm stealing it. So I drive up, take your picture, and let you see the truck. Then I come here and wait. And hey, yeah, uh, here you come. You've had time to be mad and calm down. Okay, so thanks, David. And thank you, Anne, for reading our submission for today. I want to get right into this. What are your initial thoughts from the story? Well, my first thought on the very first reading was just how beautiful the prose is. I just wanted to say that up front. Um, David Austin writes very well. And I was drawn into this story despite, not because of, despite the second person um, narrative point of view. I don't normally, I will normally shut a book if it starts out second person and I've got something else to read because generally speaking, I don't like it and I feel a little browbeaten by it. But this was so beautifully, it drew me in so beautifully that I read with great interest. And as I reread it and then read it uh, aloud, I was just so engaged in the, in the beauty of, of this writer's writing. Yeah. And well, I agree with you. And I think that sometimes lovely prose can kind of hide the, you know, underlying problems. Absolutely. Uh, you know, because you get kind of hypnotized by the lovely language. Uh, but then when you finish a, a chapter or a scene or a section, you're, you're not really sure what you read. But I didn't have that experience. Well, let me say, I should say, I had the hypnosis type experience, but I woke up recognizing what had happened. And so I think, yeah, so we definitely have the underlying structure. And we're, we don't know exactly where things go from here, you know, in the rest of the story, but we can kind of we have a hunch about where it's going and what would be very unsatisfying if it went a certain way. And so it feels like a, it feels like an artfully done setup. So one of the things we were talking about when we, you know, after we stopped ooing and aahing about the prose uh, was this story is written in second person point of view. And that's unusual. It's unusual to do well. Most uh, writing teachers, gurus, etc., will tell you, don't do this. And I, of course, don't like that. I don't like those kinds of pronouncements. Now, it is hard to do well. It's hard to know if it's working unless it's working. Right. <laughs> and... <laughs> Um, and so it is tricky, but there are benefits to looking at it because it's almost as if you're looking at a culture, like at your own culture from the outside in, in a hmm. way, because we don't normally write in second person for fiction. And so when we kind of take this apart, we can see things that we wouldn't normally see or we wouldn't normally notice because we're so used to third person and first person. And 
So I like it a lot for that. Not only was it artfully done here, but we have, you know, it, it, it is instructive even if you never use second person point of view in a story. It absolutely is. And it's a, it's kind of fun to try it and just see what it brings out about your narrator, your character. Um, it, it's a fun thing to experiment with. It's a good way to keep going when you're stuck. You can try something and it, it will, it's very disruptive. It tends to dislodge things, break things loose in your head just as, a, as an experimental um, sort of exercise. Right, so, so point of view, we, we were very clear that it's not just a grammatical construct. And that's not how you want to make the decision, right? It's about the, the point of view is about the essentially the filter, like how are you delivering the story to the reader? And so, yeah, you well, were going to say. Well, you being there, we're, we're going to be talking in, in the second person quite a bit here today. <laughs> when we talk about how are you um, delivering the story to the reader, there's you, the writer, and then there's the narrator that you put in front of you as your mouthpiece in some subtle or obvious form, uh, depending on your choices. And those choices, I mean, you're, you, the author, are not talking directly to the reader, typically, unless you're doing nonfiction. Let me tell you how to do something or other. Um, mm-hmm. but, or it's really autobiographical. Most of the time, you, the author, are choosing a person to tell the story, even though you may not make that choice consciously, um, and it may not be a strictly limited point of view of one particular character. There's a sense that you're choosing someone to speak for you and to tell the story to the reader, to stand between you and the reader and tell the story, kind of. And this this choice of you kind of eliminates that in a, in a funny way. It, I felt as I was reading this that I was being buttonholed by this guy at the water cooler who wanted to tell me, let me tell you what happened. And then, you know, you drive down the road and you do this and you, you, you this. It wasn't as crass as that, but it had that feeling of me being kind of pulled by the lapels and, mm-hmm. and having the story kind of in my face directly by this person who's saying you, you, you all the time. Even though I know perfectly well this person is talking about themselves not they're not talking about me yeah and that's something that's very interesting so when we were if we're talking about it generally kind of you know some of the things that the author has done in these pieces in this piece is that we have some very specific sensory information that we're directly experiencing because we're you know because he's directing our attention and he's doing that deliberately in the very beginning yeah right with these with the imperative mood which for non-grammar nerds that's essentially that's the command that's the request that's the i'm talking to you but i don't say you so we have that first that first line start with the old yellowing photograph and so the the narrator is essentially directing our attention that way for a little while and it starts out intensely and then becomes 
intermittent and kind of ends at the top of page three. Right, right. He goes on to say, you, uh, from, he doesn't use you. He says, from this old photo, go to the open high plains of central Montana. And he repeats that kind of feeling of directing someone's uh, actions and gaze where he wants you to look and go. And it's second person in the sense that it's imperative, one person directing another, but it doesn't actually contain the word you sometimes. That's how you can tell mm-hmm. it's, it's imperative. And it is, it's imperative. Look at this. Pull this picture out and look at it. Mm-hmm. And you do. You do, because you're reading and you can't, well, and because you've you been, can't you've look been away. given and... this command and we sort of, Either your response, and that one of the reasons I tend not to read second person is that I don't like being told what to do. And, and nobody does. <laughs> this is gentle enough. What he's asking you to do is look at a picture of a little boy. I mean, that's, that's easy enough. Right. And he doesn't start with you. Mm-mm. You you know, it's not like one of those pieces where, okay, you're walking down the road, like the water cooler thing. You know, where people might slide into that and they're using, they start using you. He's just very gently, start with the old yellowing photograph. And I know it's, I'm getting very specific and granular here. But then, was it two or in the third sentence, that's the first mention of you. And it's not really in that context. It's like he thinks that if he smiles, you won't hurt him. And so we don't really get into the, you know, very you proper uh, discussion until later. So, so we're being eased into the second person narrative and not just dropped into it right. directly. Right. And that smooth kind of, here, come on in, look over here, is very enticing and inviting um and and yeah and you mentioned that it's kind of hypnotic it is when you think about the the sort of the classic joke hypnotist of you are getting sleepy you know it has that (laughs) feeling to it you do not really notice this you feel this It, it, it has a strongly hypnotic quality which may be part of the reason i just sort of fell into it and kept reading to the point i mean I continued reading because my gut said this was this was a good story. I wanted to know what happened, but there was a definite mm-hmm. sense of being lured in by this hypnotic voice. is very powerful. Mm-hmm. And then, in terms of tense going with this, with our you know the second second person point of right. view. Um, as the, the the quote mentioned, it often goes with present, and we have quite a bit of that, but we also have some future and past. And what's interesting about it is that when you get into it, you realize, you <laughs> realize that although it's couched in terms of second person point of view, this is a person looking back and sort of justifying something. And, you know, we want to get into that, dig into that a little bit more, but that it is from a time, it is being conveyed 
at a t- sometime in the future. Yes. He leaves you little clues for one thing that this isn't the record of somebody, uh, their phone with a recording on it lying by the side of the road next to the car accident where they died. I mean, you you know, reading this, he gives you little clues with the future tense that he has survived to tell this story, even though he's putting it on you. Yeah, it's there. It's like frame within frame within yeah. frame. Yeah. It's very, it's, it's very interesting. Okay, so if we're talking about second person point of view, and and in a little twist, let's talk about why you might use this because because almost uniformly, people will tell you don't touch it, don't use it, and there are reasons for that. But why would we want to use this? Why might we experiment with it? Well, there is that hypnotic thing, and I'm not being facetious when I say there. If you want to bring your reader in at that level second person mm-hmm. works great mm-hmm. just kind of lure yeah, them in through the door with that with the <laughs> the imperative second person come in sit down that's imperative uh, you are getting sleepy you know that, that that's yeah it's, it keeps you very it keeps me as the reader very present and immersed so that is one reason you might try it I was thinking, these are not the droids you're looking for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, <laughs> yes, that's that hypnotic. It's like Jedi energy. mind tricks. There you go, Jedi mind tricks. I love it. <laughs> so, and the, the immediacy actually moves into immersion and further into, I love this, I loved this description, this allowing the reader to dissolve into the character. Yes. Right? There is not, there's no real separation, even though there is. It's kind of a, it's hard to explain. I'm going to find myself saying odd, contradictory things during this discussion, I'm it's, sure. Yeah, so, it's, it's a little bit elusive, yeah. but it's like I, if it were first person, which it kind of is because... You know it's not you talking, even though he says mm-hmm. it is. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. it's him. It's the author or the character. Um, but there's a merging yeah. of I and you. You know, I become you. I'm looking so closely into the mirror, the mirror that you're holding up for me in this in this writing that I'm becoming. Yeah, yeah dissolving into the character is a really good way to put it. I become you. You become me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, get inside my skin or or get inside my shoes right. and and see this experience from my point of view. And so within that immersion we're getting a very rich sensory experience. Now, part of that could be that this particular narrator is someone who notices that sort of thing but it's a tool or it's something that you can do particularly well with second person point of view not that you can't with the other ones but that this is something and we get really specific with the names of things with the um, the descriptions of the landscape and it's all just you know while we were talking about if how these plant or the the trees that he mentions the 
the Russian olive and the aspens in particular for me, that says, oh, we're in the West. And when I was, um, those those trees just engender that for me. And I wondered, well, what if you had, what if you don't, you're not familiar with them? Right. And yeah, and you said that, well, you would, you, you know, you would substitute that or you would, you know, add your own overlay that the, that the specificity of naming rather than describing makes it universal through being specific. Right. I don't know what a, I have a rough idea what aspens look like because I've seen pictures. Um, I live in, on the mm-hmm. West Coast, on the coast. And so mm-hmm. I'm, I don't know what a Russian olive looks like. I have an idea what olive trees look like and I can... But that doesn't matter. I just know what te- what that tells me. And choke cherries, I'm not even sure if that's a tree or a bush or what. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. It's that I know what trees are. I know what mm-hmm. hills are. I've seen my kind of trees and hills. And I understand that he is looking at these things so specifically because this is his home. And all I have to do is think about the specific trees or bushes or animals or whatever in my home to translate that feeling and be right there with him. I do not need a long description about what a Russian olive tree looks like and what it's for and where it grows. Mm-hmm. That's, if I want to look that up, that's why I have Google. But I don't, I don't need <laughs> it while reading this story because it, is, because it is specific and because he does not try to force me to see it as he sees it, the, the author, uh, but just mm-hmm. names it. And I feel it with him. Mm-hmm. I feel its presence because I know what it looks like to, what it feels like to see a familiar type of tree in a familiar landscape. Yeah, and you know that reminds me of something that you mentioned in our study group in the past about if you're an underwriter, that is, if your early drafts are more about, you know this happens and these people say this, that these kinds of details are the things, are are great things to add if you need to fill out your scenes, right. the things that your, you know, your narrator or your point of view character notice in their environment and how they feel about it not you know it doesn't have to be on the nose there's there's so little that's on the nose in this story but we get a sense of it anyway and so it's just what does he notice he notices these things this is home and that's what you really need to and know. And this that advice goes equally the other way for overwriters like me who tend to put in too much and then have to take a lot out. When you're deciding mm-hmm. what to take out, what to cut, I got this from Dwight Swain and I think it's wonderful. This Dwight Swain um, Techniques of the Selling Writer, I think is the title of the book. Yeah. yeah. When you mm-hmm. have to cut, cut facts, don't cut emotions. Hmm. And yeah. it's great advice. And when we say facts, I, I mean, uh, is a Russian olive tree a fact or an emotion? It's just, it's neither really. But if he started to say what a Russian olive tree was for or what it looked like, then he'd be falling into facts. The emotion. Cut explanations. Cut, yeah, explanations. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. So, 
Yes. Okay. So why this choice? We've got immediacy, that immersion or dissolving into a character, a rich sensory experience. And then we have persuasion. So yeah, so we're back we to feel, you are sleepy. Right? <laughs> yes, we feel. You are getting sleepy. Right. Stay awake, especially if you're driving. Right, right. Okay. But it's, you know, it's hard for me because we didn't look at other examples of second person. And I have a link that I'll include in the show notes to um, a post that has oodles of great examples of second person point of view. And so you'll be able to kind of check that out and see. But so I don't know how this compares with other stories in terms of how persuasive and subliminally persuasive they are. Like, where is this on the continuum? But what I can say is that this point of view is working really well with this story where you have a narrator who is trying to convince us of something. And so that's, you know, it's something to consider and it's something to look at and what can you pull from this and use in the point of view that you want to use to make it more persuasive and to convey that intent that the narrator really wants your buy-in on something. Right, and it isn't so much that the story itself needs your buy-in what it's asking you to do is understand that the character who is going you 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 know how it is when you drive down the road and you 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 that character needs some kind of almost absolution from you for for his choice to run away mm-hmm. and it's it's powerful because of that second person point of view more powerful than it would be if he, if the author had tried first or third right yeah. And that's that dramatic so, transaction and the, between the character and the reader. Yes, yes, it's very intense. He needs this. It is not something he merely, it's not something that would be nice to have as far as he's concerned, for sure. Right. And then and then we talked about also, we've already mentioned that we, that we're being focused or we're being led and our attention focused in a very direct way. And so that's another thing that this choice does really right, well. Right, beginning with basically look over here, look at this, mm-hmm. and now look over there at the highway going by. And that it's almost like the narrator has his hands on the side of your jaw and is turning your head look this way, look that way. Um, it's not quite mm-hmm. as coercive as that, but there's a very imperative feeling about being directed to look so that you will see what I see. And a similar, maybe a little bit less sort of ugly uh, metaphor is if you've ever been to, say, an art museum where you may not be mm-hmm. a great big art aficionado, but you're with somebody who is, and they can mm-hmm. point out to you what to look for in the art so that you you experience you have an experience of the art it reminds me a little bit Mm -hmm. of that too yes i love going places and and talking to a great example of this is i my writing partner that i've been writing with since 2003 uh she has a friend who does uh, tour guides. Oh wow! Or she is a tour guide, and she does these these very rich history 
tours of all all over the U.S. and in places in Europe, and it's really fantastic. But what's awesome about talking to her is the way that she she has such a passion for it, and she can direct your in- attention to certain things, certain right. you know. Oh, you might not have noticed this over here, and a a really skillfully written narrator will be doing that as well. Exactly. A story is drawn out of this vast scene in front of you. Tell me what I should focus on so I can build the story out of this. And this is what this narrator is doing for me as the reader, for you, you know, as the reader. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, and why might we not want to choose well, this? Because that's what most people mm-hmm. say. People hate it. Don't do people it. People hate it. I mean, it, yeah. it's a, uh, I don't, I'm not a fan of it myself. As I said, I'll tend, to, if I have something else to read, I'll put the second person story down. Uh, because it's alienating. It's it's a kind of coercive. You do this, you do that. You come with me, you go here. So there's that. And that's a, a of concern. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a story for a particular kind of reader. And yeah, the- yeah, so and then I think this in this story we it's we're so gently um pulled in that it's it's not offensive. But, right. But that's a, it's definitely a risk. Well, the events and the and the character are not um not terribly controversial or offensive so we don't mind i mean he's angry and he's sad but that's easy to relate to he's not an inhuman monster or something right which was one of the interesting things we stumbled upon was that your reader can have resistance because you don't want to be raskolnikov from crime and punishment because he's not a very nice person or good lord humbert humbert from lolita you you know you don't want to be in that point of view you don't you want to be other right you you'd be the brain bleach if if you tried to read lolita as a second person you know brought right into humbert humbert's head in that way (laughs) yeah yeah in that way but then also from the perspective of Paul Sheldon from Misery was, you know, another great example. We don't want to be put through that pain. Um, and part of the th- part of the fantastic things about, you know, uh, one of the fantastic things about stories is that we get to experience things, um, these, you know, particular emotions we call the core emotion, and we can experience them, but we're insulated from them. We're essentially in a protective frame. Right, right. Well, so we have the thrill yeah. and the fear of being chased down by the monster without actually being chased down by monsters. Right. So what this point of view does is it blurs that protective frame a bit. So you want to be mindful about what experience are you pulling the reader into and is it one that they're likely to be willing to be subject to right right um and in this case the the we're in a real world um more or less contemporary beautiful landscape i mean it's not it's not difficult to 
to uh, enter into that with this man. Uh, it's an internal genre story, mm-hmm. and it's not it's not dangerous for me to enter into and and kind of be subjected more directly to his emotional experience, at least not in the first half of this story. Right. Yeah. So then the other two that are kind of, I don't know, they almost go without saying, but I'll just go ahead and say them, uh, is that you don't have flexibility in the narrative distance with the with second person because you're just you know the immediacy is you're just in there you're in it with the narrator and um and then also it can feel like instruction which i think you mentioned earlier and that's not really fun in fiction for the most part no it could be done to to humorous effect i suppose but um that would be a pretty Mm -hmm. unique uh, story type or situation Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's why and why not we might use this this point of view. Uh, so when we're you know when we read this, we had the we both had the experience of this works pretty mm-hmm. well. You know, we it worked for us, and so. But what we we want to kind of get underneath it and and kind of how do you test whether it works? And, and does it work? And one of the resources that we've stumbled upon happily <laughs> is <laughs> Point of View in Fiction, The Development of a Critical Concept by Norman Friedman. And I believe this is a 1955 academic article about Point of View. And that isn't selling it very well. <laughs> no, it's not a big draw. He's like, "Ooh, run out and buy that." For one thing, you can't run out and buy it. <laughs> no, but it and it's a little it's dense, but it's really good stuff. And so Anne and I have kind of culled out some important bits though for you if you just don't feel like going that deep into uh into things with Mr. And Friedman. This- will all be available to you in the notes so it's very handy yes yes so and our first question when we are testing this who's is telling the story who's talking to the reader uh, the character telling the story to you and trying to convince you that you would do the same in his situation i was very struck by this effect on second reading i and and thinking about the second person narrative and why why it worked for me Part of what isn't stated in the text, except by means of this point of view, is that this guy wants me to absolve him or go along with him or approve of his plan to run away. And it reminded me so much of when somebody's excusing themselves and pleading with you. Oh, come on, you know how it is. You, you've been there. You've. It's that you, you, you that makes that brings out a big piece of the story without ever mentioning it, except subtextually by the choice of the second person point of view. It's very good. Yeah. And, and it's such a great point because when we, when people say, Oh, what point of view is your story? Is it first? Is it third limited? Is it third omniscient? Or even sometimes they'll go a little further and say, Oh, is it free and free indirect? Uh, Which is, which uh, James Wood talks about in how fiction works and it's in other other places too. But the point is 
when you talk about point of view, people don't normally talk about who is conveying the story. And that is one of the most vital pieces of information that you as the writer can have. It's not always explicit in the story, not always this explicit, you know, as we have here. Sometimes it is, for example, in Treasure Island, we have Jim Hawkins telling us right up front, I'm telling you this because the squire and Dr. Livesey asked me to do it. And so we know going in, you know, what, what that is. Sometimes you want it to be fuzzy for the reader. But as the writer, I want to give you a, a strong nudge in the direction of figuring that out. Who is telling you, your story? Obviously, it's you. You're telling the story. But there's a frame even if it's not explicit, and there is a narrator or a, you know, some entity who is conveying the information, and that will give you so much information for when you get stuck in, you know, in a particular scene. How do I present this? How do I approach this? Well, who's telling the story? And we get to this, you know, further down, but why are they telling the story? So it's vital. It It really is. It absolutely is. One of the things that's a little bit trickier for me to follow in Friedman is what the position or angle that the the, the mm-hmm. narrator is is viewing the story from or would like to bring you to. He, I think, he uses some stage terminology. I'm not sure that's Friedman. It might be Phyllis Bentley. But are <laughs> yeah. you are you front and center in front of this story, like right in the front row center in the theater? watching it unfold mm-hmm. are you on the stage are you way back are you back in the wings are you high up are you low down uh right on the ground those right. i don't know that you have to be super conscious of of like what position your drone is hovering in taking the movie here <laughs> but you need to be aware of and and you can change it you can go close in and and then draw back those are great narrative devices which don't work very well mm-hmm. in second person um, but you have to yeah. be aware of it. You've, you've got to be thinking, am I, am, am I back or up close? And with this second person, mm-hmm. you are not only up close, you are. You're making your reader be the narrator. They merge. Mm-hmm. You are in the center of the story, particularly also because for most of this, we're in the present tense. And so it's unfolding. We are in the middle of it. And the narrator has put us there. You know. Yeah. And so in the other options under that, you could be above it, which I think, you know, off the top of my head, I was thinking our town might be Mm. one where you're, you're Mm -hmm. above it. Um, But also maybe it's a wonderful life. Well, for part of the story, it's not very engaging to try to get a whole story from the 30,000 foot level, but it's a... It's almost mm-hmm. a cinematic technique where the camera, like I say, a drone shot, yeah. you know, and you you kind of circle in from a high point. But you need to yeah. be aware of where you, where you are telling the story from. Yeah. So, yeah, you can be above. You can be on the periphery. Um, almost think the great Yeah, I was going to say the great Gatsby. Gatsby. Yeah, Nick Carraway's kind of an yeah, outsider kind of who's on. looking in, like mm-hmm. face pressed up against exactly. the window, looking in and telling you what he sees. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, that's a nice image. Uh, and then, yeah, you could be in front of it or at the center of it, or you could be moving around. So you have lots of options. But again, nailing that down and understanding it will help you craft those scenes and review them so that you make sure they re- they're really working and and getting in the subliminal information that you want to pass to the reader in subtext rather than on the nose and obvious right so what comes next where the position or angle regarding the story and then then we have what channels do the information come through um what channels does the does the information come through um how do we learn about the mental states of the characters the situation um and in this story we're learning it from um the author's words telling us you character narrator right friedman is talking about the full range of point of view choices and so you could have a story where the author is essentially not just giving you their words, but their thoughts and impressions. Like there's definitely some judgment and commentary in within the story. And then you can have a character narrator who is providing not only words and actions, but thoughts, perceptions, feelings, opinions about them. But you don't necessarily need that. You could have... I mean, these are the right, these are the channels of information, how we learn about mental states, the setting, the situation, the character, all of these things. So you don't want to I wouldn't encourage you to think too much about this in the beginning, you know, before you get your draft down. But but after you have a draft, thinking about all of the different ways that information comes in and how does the reader know it? And sometimes the the channel for the information is part of the information. So not just what you say, but uh, what, who, which character you choose to have reveal it or through whose eyes you see it and how it's seen rather than how it's explained. Uh, makes a big difference in the in the actual content and structure of the story Mm -hmm. that what you said just reminded me of in the hero's journey one of the conventions is a herald and that's someone who reminds us of what's at stake or how hard things are or you know something that that there's somebody who provides that's their role in the story at least in terms of being the herald, is to right. convey information and remind us of things so that the the main characters don't have to be doing that all the time. Right. And sometimes the herald gives the speech in praise of the villain in, a, in an action story, just mm-hmm. explain, or a crime story particularly. We'll just say, yeah, we could never catch that guy. He was too, you know, he's too strong, too cunning, you know, for yeah. us. Um, and it lets everybody know, yeah, we're up against a, a hard problem here. Yeah. But in this in this second person choice, narrative choice, that 
that Herald channel is kind of closed. You don't get to use that one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, in, in this instance, we only have one other character who's really on stage. Right. And and there's a little commentary going on there, but mm -hmm. we could probably reach the same conclusion in having gone through the experience with the character. And so the character narrator who's directing us. Um, yeah, so I... I wanted to I want to jump back and grab one other uh, sort of position or vantage point question that that we want to make sure that we cover and that's the the vantage point in time and space that the story is being told relative to the events of the story so is it in the near future is it in the distant future is it shifting and in this story we it's so tricky because you think you're in present tense, but actually this is being told sometime in the future. And, and the, and the yeah. narrator knows, um, he, he explains, he, he goes into the future tense, uh, the past tense. So he, no, excuse me, it's future tense. He says, you know, you realize that you aren't going to head east to tumble into a once familiar bed in a relationship. You'll have dinner here, you'll sleep in a cheap hotel, you'll head west, you'll change your mind, you'll do this. He's telling us all this from a future perspective that already knows how this all came out. Yeah, hey, this is a foregone conclusion, right? Right. That's the, that's the setup, really, is that there's nothing else you could have done given these circumstances. And right. I'm just, it, it almost reminds me of, because we've just watched A Christmas Carol, it kind of reminds me of the, the three different ghosts pointing Scrooge to different memories. And they're actually, or, well, the pa in the past, they are his memories, but then in other times... I don't know. Maybe that doesn't actually work at all. That's actually that's actually pretty good because there's there you have this very obvious device of showing Scrooge and through Scrooge us, the mm -hmm. audience, the reader, this is what was and here's what's going on around you right now that you you really couldn't possibly know except in the future when you look back you'll be able to judge that yeah, the Cratchits didn't have enough to eat and mm -hmm. uh, have a sad Christmas or something. And than the actual being given the prophecy, being carried into the into the almost inescapable future, last chance, last mm -hmm. ditch. Yeah, it fits. It kind of fits this um, this model in a in a more overt kind of way than this story is trying to do. Yeah, I was thinking that exactly. That that a Christmas Carol is very overt, and this one is very subtle. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then after that and channels of information that we already talked about, then we get into telling or showing. Yeah. And, and what do we have here? It's mostly showing. Mm -hmm. I think it's a nice balance. I am not a writer who this is in speaking of hard and fast rules that bug me. Mm. Um, I'm not a writer who takes show, don't tell to <laughs> heart. I, I get you have to tell. There has to be some telling. You probably don't need as much as, you know, your average starting out newbie writer wants to do, but you need to tell 
some things, and he does here. There's there's some telling. Mm-hmm. He says, whatever you call it, it will be a long trip. Mm-hmm. You've you've never been comfortable on freeway. He's he's not showing you that. He's just telling you that. Yeah. Now the fact that it's in second person makes it seem less like telling. It's mm-hmm. just sort of reminding you of what you already know, which is an interesting uh, strength of the second person device. Yeah. But mostly he's just, we're going along with him and, you know, look here, here's what you see, you look over there, follow me along, we're going down these roads, truck gets towed. It's mostly showing. Yeah, and the, I think with the exception of one paragraph, every bit of telling is woven into a paragraph that has lots of showing that has, you know, that that has a, a sensory experience attached to it. Right. So you're not just, it's almost like when you, I don't know if you have this experience, but when you drive a, to places that you don't go very often or places where, or you don't drive, but, um, but if you I go, I know what driving. Is like. <laughs> but if you go, then and you, it's like you remember the pivotal event that happened in that place, right? Um, right. And and that it's kind of like it's almost like that's what he's giving us, that he's giving us an anchor for the things he's telling us in the sensory experience. It's like a landmark. And he's so specific that Mm. it's a unique experience. Um, Not once on the interstate have you seen a moose being chased across a meadow by a Hindu photographer or a bear in the borrow ditch with a bag of Cheetos and a fluorescent orange snout. Nobody except this guy has ever seen those things. Right. <laughs> and yet it's so, it's so, uni- I can picture it so easily. Mm-hmm. I'm not totally sure. I, I hear that moose are really big, but I've never seen one in oh, person. Yeah, um, I've, yeah, I've never seen a bear up close and not out in the wild anyway. Certainly not one with a bag of Cheetos. But <laughs> I mean, it's, I, that. It's telling, I mean, he's telling you, he's giving you this visual. He's just, it's not something happening now on this, in the story. Mm-hmm. He's just saying, you know, that these are some of the things that I experienced in the past um, on these country roads. And it's one of the reasons why I prefer them to the freeways. You're not actually seeing it happen. He's just telling you that it happened once. Mm-hmm. But it's so vivid and sensory and so specific that it doesn't feel like you're being told. Right, right. So then finally we come to this question, which is why is the storyteller telling you the story? And this is not officially one of Friedman's questions, but I think it's really important. And again, it doesn't have to be explicitly revealed in your story, but you you as the writer want to understand why the narrator is conveying the story what are they trying to get out of it what do they want to achieve and what do they want from the reader yes kind of i mean in a way why are you telling me this story Mm -hmm. and i i said earlier and i feel it very strongly that this this guy telling me this story and buttonholing me by the water cooler and telling me this second person story really needs me to tell him that his decision was okay because he he knows it really probably wasn't his decision to leave, to run away and go to Seattle. Yeah, yeah. And 
you know, that um, it, a, a contrast to it, um, is Treasure Island, where we're told we're not really the intended audience for Jim Hawkins' um, account of his adventure. But we get to read it anyway. And so that's kind of fun. But another thing that's interesting, because he does use um, you occasionally, you know, occasionally the second person is used in a different way to pull, you know, the intent is clearly to pull the reader's attention to something in particular, to like wake them up a little bit out of the story at certain Mm. points, out of the hypnosis of the story at certain points. And, oh, notice this. Okay, back to back to your regularly scheduled programming, you know. Right. And and those devices are so much fun and, and they're frowned on today a lot of the time, but they're wonderful storytelling devices. I think they work really well in moderation. You know, I I don't I don't like the arbitrary use of it, but if there's you know, if like I noticed that it's used in in Treasure Island in moments where you where the tension is really high and you are you want to know what's going to happen, and he has to make sure that you catch this little morsel of information. He doesn't want right. you to just skip over it, so he slows you down <laughs> so a little bit. Hang on, <laughs> hang on, bear with. Okay, now continue. <laughs> it's just right. brilliant. It really is. It's it's right. such stellar storytelling. I'm a huge Robert Louis Stevenson fan. Anyway. <laughs> okay, do we want to say anything more about the submission? Yeah, I, I did want to just compliment David Austin on... Um, his beautiful prose. I had I, I had suggested to you, Leslie, that this would be a good candidate for talking about auditory qualities in prose, and we decided mm-hmm. there probably wasn't quite enough there to make a whole podcast out of. But I just wanted to just mention a couple of sentences. The one that I just read: "A bear in the borrowed ditch with a bag of Cheetos." He has a wonderful way with alliteration. The truck will be towed, stripped, or stolen. Mm -hmm. Uh, temporary transplants from all over the country with no understanding of the traditions. He just, I I don't, I have, I don't know who this author is or how much poetry he has in his background, but his word (laughs) choices and the, the ease of reading this out loud and reading it well out loud was just, I I just wanted to pass along my compliments. It's very, very beautifully done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I know some, some listeners get a little upset when we gush and gush and gush about about a story and um because they you know they want it to be instructive they want you know I was so I remember being in creative writing classes where they would the teacher would say oh read this Alice Monroe story or read this uh, I'm forgetting, or, you know, Margaret Atwood story, or, you know, right. anybody who writes really beautiful stories that are well-structured, gorgeous prose, they would have us read them, we would sort of chat about what we liked about them. And then the teacher would say, okay, go forth and write just like that. Oh, boy. And, which, <laughs> okay. okay, that's Gosh. simple. <laughs> I, why didn't I think of that? Right. And that was incredibly frustrating. And so, 
I don't want to do that. But what I want to do is like, you know, part of this reading stuff that's, you know, that we really enjoy. And then if you're okay with it, some stories we don't want to necessarily take apart and look at what we like about them because they're just too special to us. Mm -hmm. But if, but for the most part, I would encourage you to, if you find something you enjoy, to read it again. Or if it's a, if it's a, a movie or a television show, watch it again and look at the deliberate choices that the artist is making because you will learn more about yourself and what you're really attracted to and, and those kinds of things. But you'll also begin to get a feel for, well, how do they do it? You know, um, so it's not just read this beautiful story and go write it. It's read this beautiful story. What are they doing here? Let's see what we can learn from them and, you know, what specific things we can learn for them. And then what can we apply to our own writing? So that's what I would say about that. And I would, and I found reading this that I, even though I was put off by the second person at first, I, I fell into it, I read through it, and when I kind of raised my head from these uh, four or five pages, without going into any intellectual analysis or anything, I thought, that was good. Mm-hmm. That was good. Mm-hmm. And so then I went back to figure out what made it good. Why did it work when, even though I'm not especially interested in a sad man driving to Seattle, you know, I'm, it, it, it worked. And my gut told me that it worked first. Mm-hmm. And then I, you know, you and I have gone back and looked at some of the things that made it work uh, as a little story. Mm-hmm. And the same can be done if I've read something and it didn't, it's like, that didn't land. I didn't, mm-hmm. it was kind of hard for me to get through. I didn't really enjoy it. Take a minute, go back, especially if it's something that's been recommended to you and published and is supposedly good. Right. Go back and figure out, go back and figure out why. Mm-hmm. And if just one other little quick thing, if people are, Mm -hmm. you know, don't want us to gush too much about nicely written stories, I just have one complaint about this one. I will call Mm -hmm. it out. Okay, go ahead. Cliche alert. The blisters on your, uh, the blisters on your heels seem to have blisters of their own. Bye, I've been walking so long, my blisters had blisters. That was one thing, David Austin, you might consider changing. So that feels a little cliche. A little bit cliche. Yeah. A little bit, I've heard that one before. I can see that. Yeah, I think I, yeah. Um, that well, thank goodness he had that blemish, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that blister on the blister, <laughs> right? Yeah, okay. So, I think we've made a convincing case for second person point of view, but yeah. now we want to well, give you an editorial mission and ask you what would you do. <laughs> yeah. so, So I want you to take a scene from your work in progress and go ahead, do it. I want you to write it, yeah, rewrite it in second person. Now it's challenging. Uh, This is a challenging point of view to write in. It's hard to sustain. Just do the best you can. This is a learning exercise. It's not anything that you have to show anybody. So after you've rewritten in second person, then I want you to read what you've written and then go through Friedman's questions. You know, who is telling the story or talking to the reader? From what position or angle regarding the story? So where is that person? And then the vantage, po- 
the vantage point in time and space relative to the events. Now, again, like I didn't talk about place in terms of this story, um, and we might find that out. I would be I would be surprised if we didn't find that out in the second half of the story. But just as an example, in Treasure Island, Jim Hawkins is not on Treasure Island when he's writing his account of his adventures. He's back in England. So um, that's just yeah, you know, yeah, another the, thing. The big question he left us hanging with is, is he telling this story from, you know, a cafe looking out at the Space Needle or has he gone back home? Right. And we're going to be disappointed, you said. Mm-hmm. I don't want him to be at the Space Needle. Don't that go to the Space Needle. Don't go to the Space Needle. <laughs> it seems like the other character in the scene is there to disrupt him. Uh, yes. Possibly. Yes. Certainly, because he tows his truck and then takes a Polaroid picture. Okay. <laughs> it's That's... That's very cool. Okay. That was a lovely moment. Yeah. So then, so that's vantage point. And then which channels of information does the reader, you know, through those channels, through which channels that is of information, does the reader learn about mental states, the setting, the situation, characters, you know, how are we getting that information through Words, actions, thoughts, perceptions, feelings. Are they the character, the narrator, the author? How are we getting that information? And then what's the balance of telling versus showing? You need telling in your story. Um, But is it a balance that seems to be working? And so looking at that and... I want to, I'll make sure I provide a resource. If you're having, if you struggle with telling, telling from showing, um, I want to provide something to help. I'll find something to help you do that if that's a, if that's a challenge. Uh, And then why is your narrator telling the story? Because you're going to have a different story depending on their motivation. Yep. And then once you go through all that, what do you notice about the point of view that you've chosen when you compare it to what you've written in second person? And again, think of it as you're seeing your story, your, the point, your point of view choices from the outside looking in because it's different. And so it'll probably give you some interesting insights about those choices. You may make some changes. It may validate your choices, which is is great. Or it may make you think, oh, I need to I need to make some changes. And that's great, too, because you know. So a, a reminder that this was a complicated editorial mission. And so if you didn't quite catch all of that, you can go to writership.com slash episodes to get to find that. And if you sign up there, you'll get those editorial missions delivered right to your inbox. As we wrap things up for today, remember that Jim Krugrell of the Author Marketing Club and Sell More Book Show is doing another big conference, this time in Chicago in May of 2018. It's called the Sell More Book Show Summit, and you can learn more and get your ticket at sellmorebookshow.com summit.
Jim Kukrell and the Author Marketing Club cover hosting and technical support for the show, but our Patreon crew supports our time as we prepare. We have some great rewards for folks that support the show, including our monthly book club, when we read a book and then we analyze it and talk about what's good, what works, and what doesn't. This month, that is April 2018, we are reading The Curious Incident of the Dog in Nighttime by Mark Haddon. It's a mystery, and we are excited to get to the bottom of it. For more information about the book club and other ways to support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash writership. If you enjoy the show and want to show your support in other ways, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. And if you want to have your five pages reviewed, please visit writership.com slash submissions. Big thanks to Anne Holly for joining me today. Again, if you want to catch up with her, you can find her at anneholly.net, and the address will be in the show notes. Okay, that's it for episode 126. We'll see you next time on the Writership Podcast. Ready for Leslie and Clark to help you find the treasure in your manuscript? Submit your pages to writership.org forward slash podcast.